This is Space Time Series 23, Episode 99, for broadcast on the 23rd of September, 2020. Coming up on Space Time, the first flights from Southern Launch's Australian rocket range, 263 new near-Earth objects detected over the past month, and another successful test for SpaceX's latest Starship prototype test article. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Southern Launch has undertaken its first flights from its new rocket test range in Western South Australia. The successful missions launched two space-capable rockets within two hours of each other on suborbital ballistic trajectories from the Kaniba test range 40 kilometres north of Sejuna. The successful flights followed a technical issue during an initial launch attempt earlier in the week which resulted in an engine ignition misfire. Both launches carried electronic warfare test payloads for Australian defence contractor DEWC Systems. The test payloads were each equipped with a miniature suite of antennas, sensors and communications equipment. The flight profiles required the payloads to be deployed just a minute and six seconds after launch at an altitude of 65 kilometres and then continue independently to an aperture of 85 kilometres before intercepting signals from a specially positioned radar set up downrange. The payloads then carried out their readings during the descent phase of each flight, before safely parachuting back to the ground some 95 kilometres north of the launch pad, 31 minutes and 25 seconds after blastoff. The flights also tested how well the delicate electronics of each payload survived the rigors and 60G acceleration forces of the launch. For these first test flights, Southern Launch utilised the new T-DART spin-stabilised two-stage sounding rocket developed in the Netherlands. The unusual 3.4-metre-long 34-kilogram needle-like rockets use an ammonium perchlorate composite solid fuel propellant and are designed to accelerate a payload to Mach 5.2 in just 6 seconds, reaching altitudes of over 120 kilometres. The Kaniba test range is designed to allow companies to both test and retrieve their launch vehicles and payloads after each flight in order to examine how the equipment performed during the mission, gleaning information that can't be sent through telemetry. Southern's orbital launches, which were also to begin this year, will take place from the company's Whalers Way launch complex on the Air Peninsula, 27 kilometres southwest of Port Lincoln. They'll then fly over the Great Southern Ocean, primarily on polar orbits. This is Space Time. Still to come, 263 new near-Earth objects detected over the past month and another successful test flight for SpaceX's new Starship prototype. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The latest data from the European Space Agency's Near-Earth Objects Coordination Centre indicate there are now at least 23,423 asteroids and 111 comets on orbits which either cross or at least bring them close to Earth's orbit around the Sun. In fact, astronomers have discovered 350 more near-Earth objects so far this year than what they detected over the same period last year. 
It brings the total number of near-Earth objects discovered since January to 1,740, including some 263 over the past month alone. Let's just hope it's a case of getting better at finding them rather than there being more of them out there. Now, as we reported last month, at least one of those near-Earth objects got awfully close. Asteroid 2020QG swooped down to around 3,000 kilometres above the Indian Ocean in the hours before it was discovered by the Zwicky Transient Facility Observatory. This flyby is now officially classified as the closest non-impacting asteroid ever observed, even though we only saw it after its nearest approach. Studying asteroids and comets when they're near the Earth allows scientists to better understand these potential harbages of doom as cometary scientist Clara Goetz from the European Space Agency explains. I am a scientist at the European Space Agency and I study comets and how they interact with the space around them. What is a comet? Comets are small objects in our solar system. They're usually just a couple of kilometers in diameter. It's about the size of a, a village or a small city. And they are made up of ice and dust. This ice and dust is very, very loosely packed, so um, there's a lot of small spaces in between it. This means the density is quite low. So if you had a really big bathtub, the comet would actually float in it. They also have very small gravitational pull. So if you jump on a comet just a little bit, you would just float away. Comets have all kinds of shapes. Most of the ones that we've seen are kind of potato shaped. They hurtle through our solar system at speeds about a thousand times faster than you can go in a car. So this is about one to a hundred kilometers per second. And the ones that we know most are um, those that go closer to the sun. There, the comet then heats up because of the sunlight on its surface and the ices become a gas and leave the comet. They expand into space. And this causes the gases to be accelerated away from the comet, which then forms a tail. And this is what most comets are known for. Some of these tails are so bright that by just looking at the night sky with a small telescope or binoculars, you can actually observe these tails yourself. Where do comets come from? About four billion years ago, our solar system didn't exist. None of the planets in it had formed. Um, there was just a giant nebula around the sun that was made up of ice and dust. And the planets then started to slowly form and started to collect the nebula around them. But small rocky beginnings of comets also formed and they very, very slowly collided together. Some of them continued to grow and became moons and planets, but some of them were just small, didn't grow much further, and eventually they moved out at, to the edge of our solar system. Passing planet or even a passing galaxy from outside our solar system can give them really tiny push and they start to journey back into our solar system near the planets and near Earth. 
And this is where we can observe comets as well. Because these comets have up until then had a very quiet and undisturbed life, they haven't been heated up by the sun. They have very small gravitation, though they're not compressed by their own gravitation. And that means that these comets are actually the leftovers that we can observe from the formation of our solar system. They can tell the story of what this formation period, this time where the planets uh, formed and the moons around them actually looked like. So we can understand how the solar system was made by looking at comets. Can we visit a comet? Yes. Well, not we ourselves, but we can send little robots, spacecraft, to the comet to observe it for us. The first major comet that we were able to observe with spacecraft was Comet Halley in 1986. Um, it was visited by a fleet of little robots from all over the world, from uh, the United States, from Russia, from Japan, and also from Europe. They observed the comet, but only very briefly. They couldn't stay there. That's um, much too difficult for such a fast comet as uh, Halley. But they flew by in a couple of hours and they collected all the data that we can then analyze. This helped us see what comets look like, the shape, um, and what the dust was like that surrounded it. But the scientists wanted to study a comet in more detail and over a longer time to see how it evolves from being very far away from the sun to very close to the sun. So in 2014, the European mission Rosetta arrived at comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. And it was able to stay there for two years and observe the comet and its surroundings. And Rosetta's little sibling, Philae, even landed on the comet and took pictures just a couple of centimeters from the surface. This was quite an achievement for a little spacecraft that's just the size of a washing machine. At the end of the coming decade, so at the end of the 2020s, we're going to launch another cometary mission. It's called Comet Interceptor, and it will be the first spacecraft ever to fly by a comet that has just come from the edge of our solar system. This mission will tell us how comets change as they approach the sun, and it will help us understand our own planet Earth and how the solar system formed. That's Clara Goetz from the European Space Agency. And this is Space Time. Still to come, another successful test for SpaceX's Starship prototype. And later in the science report, new claims that COVID-19 really was invented in a Chinese government laboratory. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, Namecheap.com. As their slogan says, search and buy domains from Namecheap at the lowest prices. Now, this is the service that our team at Bytes.com use to buy and manage our domain names, and we're really happy with the service support and value we're getting. 
Buying the right domain name shouldn't be hard, and with Namecheap, we've found it to be anything but that. And you can find your dream domain and join over 2 million happy customers when you register with Namecheap. Trusted with well over 10 million domains, you'll know you're in safe hands when it comes to turning your website idea into reality. And they've got some excellent tools to help you find the right name, like the handy search engine. All you do is type in your desired name, cross your fingers, and press search. And if what you want's already gone, and it does happen sometimes, they'll come up with some great alternative ideas. And if you're looking for some new inspiration, try the new website domain name finder, Beast Mode. It'll help you discover thousands of domain names fast. We've found their prices to be excellent, management tools intuitive, and they're easy to use with excellent custom support if you need it. All in all, it's a great experience all round if you're looking to pick up a domain name or two. So, why not check them out and help support our show at the same time? Just visit spacetimewithstuartgary.com forward slash name cheap. That's spacetimewithstuartgary.com forward slash name cheap and name cheap is one word. You'll find the URL details in the show notes and on our website. Just visit the support page. That's spacetimewithstuartgary.com forward slash name cheap. And now, it's back to our show. You're listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. SpaceX has successfully conducted a sixth test flight of a prototype test article for Elon Musk's long-dreamed-of Starship Interplanetary Colonial Transport. As with the previous test a month ago, the SN6 flight saw the prototype climb to an altitude of about 150 metres before safely returning to Earth. Musk says the latest test hop was however smoother and more controlled. If future tests over the next few months go as smoothly, he hopes to undertake the first orbital flight of Starship next year. Once operational, the two-stage reusable launch system will be capable of transporting 150 tonnes of people and cargo to orbit and 100 tonnes on missions to the Moon, Mars and on interplanetary journeys across the solar system. It would ultimately replace SpaceX's existing Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy launch systems, as well as the Dragon capsule, with Musk already touting Starship to NASA to transport cargo to the surface of the Moon. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A scientist who studied the initial outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic in China says the deadly virus, which has now killed almost a million people and infected around 30 million others, was invented in a laboratory run by the Chinese government. Virologist Dr. Lai Mingyang, who was forced to flee China in April, has reported her findings on the open access digital platform Zenodo. Yang had been working at the Hong Kong University's Public Health Laboratory Sciences Division, a World Health Organization Infectious Diseases Research Center. She says her findings were deliberately suppressed by the Chinese government, and she was ordered to only report cases that could be linked to the Wuhan wet markets. Yang's paper is titled Unusual Features of the SARS-CoV-2 Genome, Suggesting Sophisticated Laboratory Modification Rather Than Natural Evolution and Delineation of Its Probable Synthetic Route. The paper was co-authored by three other doctors specialising in virology. 
Yang concludes the virus appears to have been created in a laboratory over a six-month period and shows biological characteristics inconsistent with the naturally occurring zoonotic virus. Now, this contradicts reports in the journal Nature, which conclude that the deadly SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, probably originated in Chinese horseshoe bats as the RATG-13 virus before mutating naturally and then jumping from animals to humans, possibly through an intermediary, at the Wuhan wet markets near where the first human case was recorded on November the 17th, 2019. But Yan insists that the natural origin theory, though widely accepted, lacks substantial support. Alternative hypotheses suggest the virus was naturally occurring but escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology Research Laboratory due to poor security protocols. Another hypothesis is that it was released accidentally when an underpaid Wuhan Institute of Virology lab worker sold infected research animals to the local wet markets in order to supplement their income. Whatever the truth, we now know that the Chinese government and the World Health Organization covered up the initial outbreak in November and December of 2019, despite the high number of fatalities recorded at the Wuhan epicenter. And while Beijing banned people in Wuhan from traveling to other parts of China, it continued allowing them to freely travel overseas, spreading the deadly infection globally. Doctors and journalists who reported the outbreak were arrested by the Chinese Communist Party, with many either mysteriously dying or disappearing. At the same time, the Chinese government ordered Chinese companies globally to begin buying up any and all available supplies of antiviral drugs and ventilator machines, as well as gloves, masks, respirators and other personal protective equipment, shipping it all back to China by the container load. A massive 110-square-kilometre chunk of Greenland's ice cap has broken off in the far northeastern Arctic. A report by the National Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland says the event is further evidence of the worsening impact of rapid climate change. The glacier section that broke off measures some 80 kilometres long by 20 kilometres wide. Scientists say the ice shelf has now lost some 160 square kilometres since 1999. A new study warns that the death of a family pet can trigger a sense of grief in kids that is profound and prolonged and can potentially lead to subsequent mental health issues. The findings by scientists at Massachusetts General Hospital and reported in the Journal of European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry shows that the strong emotional attachment youngsters have for pets can result in measurable psychological distress, which can serve as an indicator for depression in children and adolescents for up to three or more years after the loss of a beloved family pet. These days, about half of all homes in developed countries have at least one family pet, usually either a dog or a cat. And researchers found that the bonds that children form with pets can equate to secure human relationships in terms of providing affection, protection and reassurance. The simple fact is, the death of a much-loved family pet is likely to be one of the first major losses a child will encounter in their lives. Scientists found that 63% of children will be exposed to the death of a loved family pet within the first seven years of a child's life. And while this teaches kids about the circle of life, it can be traumatic with long-lasting effects. Scientists have used DNA analysis to show that the Vikings who plundered and pillaged Britain originally came from Denmark, while those who attacked Ireland, Iceland and Greenland were from Norway. The findings reported in the journal Nature also showed that Swedish Vikings sailed their longboats eastwards towards the Baltic states. 
The study analysed DNA from 442 ancient humans across Europe and Greenland, covering the Bronze Age from around 2400 BCE through to the early modern period of around 1600 AD. But scientists also found traffic wasn't one way, with many Viking Age individuals both within and outside Scandinavia having high levels of non-Scandinavian ancestry, which suggests movement and interbreeding across Europe. It's been revealed that the imagined threats of 5G telecommunications are now starting to cause real-world harm. Attacks on cell phone towers are merely the latest evidence that virtual disinformation is leading to actual violence. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says a new report by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford has found that celebrities, politicians and other public figures account for around 20% of all disinformation about issues like 5G and coronavirus. There's a lot of people who are concerned about uh, fifth generation telecommunications. You mentioned the word radiation and they leap and get worried. Danger Will Robinson. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sort of a basic misunderstanding of that uh, radiation covers a, a multitude of sins from the sun, of course, from the earth, from everywhere. But in telecommunications, the radiation being emitted there is what's called non-ionizing radiation. So it doesn't have an effect on bodily parts, etc. Ionizing radiation does, that's the x-ray part of the spectrum. And that certainly can cause damage, as we know. But uh, all the telecommunications stuff comes down low in the, the wavelength, if you like, and therefore they're not as uh, concerned. But obviously people just react to the term radiation and they instantly assume that it's going to be harmful to them. One of the issues with 5G telecommunications is that you need a lot more antennas because it's weaker. So you need more transmitters and antennas uh, around the place and that, that's getting people worried because I think the more of them you have, the stronger the signal where it's not. It's making up for a weak signal and it's basically no stronger a signal than the 4G, which has been around for a long time. But there's no convincing some people. Um, they don't go any further than saying the word radiation and that's enough. And of course, some of them are taking it, uh, protesting in the streets, some of them taking it more extreme and burning down telecommunications towers. It's a good case actually recently of a lady in, uh, in one of the New South Wales regional towns who was complaining about how it was affecting her really badly, affecting her health, couldn't sleep, blah, 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 until they pointed out that there was actually no 5G transmitter in the area. So she was <laughs> rather rather oversensitive, if you like, to what was going on. Um, how did she explain that? I don't think she did. It's one of those things where you sort of sneak away quietly. She probably starts blaming something else then, you know, the, the microwave, the high-attention power lines, that sort of thing, but uh, who knows. But no, it, she was blaming 5G, and sorry, <laughs> definitely not the case. Whoopsie. I guess, Whoopsie. I guess. Yeah. The other issue here is people are still blaming 5G for COVID-19. Uh, they are, yes. But they're, they're, a lot of things are being blamed for COVID-19. The interesting thing is there have been campaigns about 5G, anti-vaccination, COVID-19 issues. One particular campaign of protest march or you know, speeches and things in Melbourne was saying that 5G is causing coronavirus, COVID-19. The next speaker said COVID-19 didn't exist. That's not really it's a government plot. Well, they obviously can't, <laughs> but it didn't matter because you then go on to they have a multitude of uh, of claims which are totally conflicting, contradictory, and um, that doesn't seem to matter to anyone really. And the other issue is, of course, it drags in all the the people who are anti this and anti that, the government conspiracy people, the anti vaccination people. You'll find that at a five G protest march, there'll be a lot of other people, each coattailing on each other. They probably feed on each other with a sense of uh, paranoia and conspiracy, which just makes them feel stronger, which makes them feel that their cause is more justified. It's not. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. 
Space Time is broadcast on Science Zone Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and through both iHeartRadio and on TuneIn Radio. Or you can subscribe and download Space Time as a free podcast through Apple, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Audioboom, Podbeam, Android, Castbox, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite download podcast provider. You can help support the show and the work we do by visiting the Spacetime online shop and grabbing yourself a few goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to commercial-free double-episode versions of the show, as well as bonus audio content and other rewards. Just go to our Patreon page through spacetimewithstuartgary.com for all the details. If you want more space time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 